Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is an episode I am so thrilled about. Uh, Eddie Izzard, the Eddie Izzard, is on the show. He is the author of a new book called Believe Me, a memoir of love, death, and jazz chickens. If you don't know who Eddie Izzard is, in which case, shame on you. He is one of the the sort of great comics of, of our age. Um, just a tremendous, tremendous performer. When asked on Twitter what I should ask him about, as I often do, I got just a million replies that just said cake or death. If you have not watched cake or death, just go and YouTube that and Eddie Izzard before listening to this episode. It will be worth it. Um, We talk about the cake or death routine and how it came up, talk about his life, about coming out as transgender. We talk about his love of history, uh, and he explains World War One in one of the most entertaining sections that has probably been on this podcast. Talk about his creative process and how he writes jokes, how he thinks about jokes, the differences or lack thereof between comedy audiences in the U.S. and in New York. We talk about his political ambitions. He wants to run for parliament in the U.K. and is currently listening over and over again to Al Franken's new book, which he sees as a model for his own career. So this is a, a lot of fun as an episode. Before we get into it, quick plugs. Uh, check out Chris Parnell on I Think You're interesting uh todd vanderwoof's great culture interview podcast he is on archer and he is on rick and morty and he is hilarious and it is a great interview i've listened to it of course check out the weeds my other podcast with matt iglesias and sarah cliff and other vox folk where we talk about policy and the news of the day there is a lot of news of the day a lot of policy to talk about uh you'll enjoy it so without further ado here is eddie izzard Eddie Izzard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So it's it's a pleasure to have you here. When I was preparing for this, I, I found out something about you that I don't know and sort of don't believe, which is that you ran 43 marathons in 51 days for a yeah. charity, and then you ran 27 marathons in 27 days? It's all CGI. I was just in a – I was actually in – in Arizona, pretending to be on the Apollo moon launch. No, it's true. I did it. I did. It. The weird thing is that the, um, they can go and check it. Um, it was very painful, and, and I took a camera team with me, so that luckily they could prove that I was there. Um, they did go off and have lunch, though. But uh, do you I have just, knees left? Do I have knees? That? Yeah, the knees aren't any problem. Now, I, I have actually. I wrecked one of my knees, my left knee, by trying to jump out of nettles. I talk about nettles in my book. Uh, you have nettles in America, don't you? We do have nettles. I don't remember them as quite as dangerous as you frame them in the book. No, well, but they do they do sting kids, don't they? They yes. do go out, and then the owl continues for a number of hours of owl before before less owl. But there's the dock leaf thing you apparently don't have, this sort of other weed thing that – that old wives' tales story was that you get this other weed and you rub it on the, the stinging bit and it goes away, which apparently I've talk, just been talking to some American friends. They're saying, no, we don't have that. Do you not have that? You, does that ring a bell with you? Uh, it does not. I think we mostly have, have topical uh, painkillers and, yeah, now, have, and now opioids. Yeah, I know. I mean, what did they do back in the day when the, the local shop was nowhere because no one had built shops? I don't know. Anyway, we had these, but um, what was I? What was I? I've just come, you were come talking about point. how you injured your knee. Oh yes, in I jumped over. I was I was trying to get through a golf course, which is the one in near Belfast. Um, I was going to make a run from the hotel I was in the the Hollywood with one L. I was with one L. There was a Hollywood, but it's uh, I went for a run and I went through a golf course and it said on the Google Maps you can come out the back of the golf course, keep going. At the end of about you know mile or two of running through a quite a, you know golf course is quite big, um, you couldn't get through. It was all locked down, shut off, except for if you went through this tumble down thing with broken lots of nettles on the and then there was a barbed wire fence, but it was pushed down in one bit. So I thought I'll just do a standing leap 
out of the nettles, you know, over the nettles, over the barbed wire fence, and then trying to do one of these elasticated leaps that you might be able to do when you're a child, I tore the everything of my knee on the left. So that knee became a very bad knee, but then it healed up, and now when I run on it, it's fine. So that's the that's the long, windy story that my knees have not been damaged by running over uh, 80 marathons now. How did you get into distance running? What do you like about it? Well, it was a way of getting my health back. That was a gift to myself, a health fitness thing. All wild animals are fit, um, I've noticed, and it's only domesticated humans and domesticated animals that are not fit. They're all fit. They're all, including the sloth, which we assume just hangs around and doesn't do anything. He looks like a pretty fit sloth. He's very good at hanging around. Uh, he or she, I should say, in a very positive way. And um, so we should be like that. We are natural animals. The wild animals are natural animals. And we, the domesticated or the civilized, whatever we call ourselves. So we should be moving that much. When we're kids, we move and then we stop moving. We say, ah, oh, we shouldn't move. And then, as you get older, you say, oh, that's a bit creaky. I better pull back. In fact, you should push through creaky to get it going again. Um, a bit like a car. If you've got a car going after a while, it might make some noises. But then if you've got the oil going on it, then it would go, ah, now it's a better noise. You, you need to use this body thing that we have not not use it and we tend to not use it as we get older so that was the gift to myself and the rest of it was adventure uh, fundraising money um uh, a life-changing thing you know i just ran 27 marathons 27 days for nelson mandela last year and that was great the salute to the great man um run from where he was born to where he became president in pretoria uh from eastern cape down through cape town ran around robin island you know where he was in prison for 18 years i think out of the 27 so I dreamed it up. I thought, this is a good way of doing things. I've often told myself I'm going to get in better shape. And then I try running. And I don't think I've ever quite made it more than more than four miles. So my, my wife does marathons as well. And, and, and there's something alien about it to me. So, so tell me, what do you like about just being out there pounding pavement for so long? Do, do, you, do you not get bored? Well, you see, I, I, maybe I get less bored because I've got so many things to think about. As... <laughs> As an open, you know, someone who came out when they were 23, uh, who wants to stand for member of parliament in the next election in the UK. Um, I'm touring now in four languages in stand-up comedy. I'm doing drama just with Judy Dench in a Stephen Frears film. I, I've pushed a lot of things to, you know, instead of the jack of all trades, I'm trying to be a master of a select few. And there's a lot of things to think about. The whole, you know, I have a theory of the universe in my book. <laughs> who should, you're not allowed to have a theory of the universe unless you're Stephen Hawking. But I decided I'd throw one in there just to see what ripples it causes. So I can think about all these things. As I ran through the UK, I could think about the history there. As I ran through Eastern Cape, there were people, very very rural area where, where Nelson Mandela had grown up. And to think to go from that to where he went to, the journey he took, um, that he was part of a, a, a royal family, a royal lineage but in a more rural area that obviously the Afrikaans people weren't accepting that was a royal lineage or, you know, whatever royal lineage means, you know, just a, one of those lines. And But the fact that he came from that and that he pushed all the way through to where he got to, I think that was – it's a wonderful journey. And he's a human being and we can all – you know, there's 7 billion people in this world. This is a key century for us. This is what I've worked out. Well, see, I keep thinking about these things. This is a key century. This 21st century, we either make it for humanity or I think we blow ourselves off the planet. That's what I, I think. This is the key century, 21st century, the first century for the rest of eternity where all 7 billion people have a fair chance in life or we will actually, I think, destroy ourselves, especially with Trump hate, Brexit hate, all the extreme hatreds, separation, pull, run and hide type politics, 1930s revisited politics that's going on or has been going on until France put a big peg in that and President Macron got in and changed that because that was like a re referendum there. So you know, I, I was worrying where – I'm still worrying where we're going with politics. Well, tell me about politics here for a minute. We're, we're going to jump around in, in time a bit here, but, mm. but let's start with your future, I guess. Why do you want to run for parliament? Well, I'd like to do what Senator Al Franken has already done. In fact, we're competing on books, it seems. His book, I've just been Yes, in I'm interviewing him later this week. I've been reading your book simultaneously. Well, tell him I've already listened to his book one and a half times now, which is kind of interesting. Wow. I just finished it and I pressed play again and I started from the beginning. Because if you listen to audiobooks, the best way to listen is have it on. You do your things, you're doing this, you're getting ready. If you're a transgender person, you're putting on some makeup or whatever it is. Um, and you might miss certain bits. So don't worry about it because otherwise you're constantly 
constantly stopping, rewinding, stopping, rewinding, and it gets kind of crazy. So the best thing is let it all run through and then just play it again and then play it again. And uh, because his politics are very similar to mine, because where he came from, where he's going to is very similar direction. I know him well. Um, I really respect him. And uh, it's like I can tell my where, some of where my journey is going to be in the UK because of what his journey has been in the US. But like Al, I, I think both of us feel we like to analyze things. Surely there's a better way of doing things. We might have been doing okay for ourselves, but we want everyone to do well. There's this inclusionist thing that Democrats and Labour Party people have. I think I, I just realized today I've came to this conclusion. The bottom line for Republicans and the Conservative Party is that they want to be in power. They want to have power. And the bottom line for Democrats and uh, Labour Party people is we want to make lives better for people. It's a slightly different place. So, so what brought you to that? Doesn't that feel when you're talking about there being hate out there? Do you feel that Republicans and, and in your country conservatives wake up feeling that way? I mean, because it, it, when I talk to them, they're much more the heroes of their own story than that. Nobody wakes up saying, I just want power. I mean, maybe Donald Trump kind of does, actually, but he's a very unusual <laughs> Don't you think? I sort of think he actually does. Don't um, you think some of the members of the room, some of the Tea Party people – well, it, it's – you know, the fact they were so obstructionist in what they did with your – you know, your perfectly formed three legs of the of the, of the whole government with, with the judiciary and the, and the Capitol Hill and then the president and then the Tea Party said, well, we can just put a – bike in the spokes of the wheel and just keep stopping everything. And that's great, isn't it? Isn't that really fun? And then we'll blame it because no one's really paying attention. You can just blame it on everyone. But in fact, it's them doing it. So they just wanted to get power. I think that was the, I think Al Franken says it in his book, um, basically wanted to stop uh, President Obama's presidency and make sure it didn't do anything very positive while it was in power. That was in the first term. Stop it. Make it just a one-term presidency and then the Republicans get get back in. So it does look like, you know, the, the Republicans are more into, even more than I'd say in the Conservative Party in the UK. There's, there's a difference between them. But um, I hope that more Democrats, more Labour Party people, I'd say Lib Dems as well. Anyone on the progressive side is trying to make better life better for as many people as possible. So I'll, t- I'll tell you what scares me about politics because it is unusual for me to be to be interviewing folks from from your world and it's a, it's a real pleasure but I cover politics most of the time and right. what scares me about politics is sincerity. Uh, I think that we always assume politicians are being cynical and it would be so much easier if they were being cynical, if they sort of knew what, you know, quote unquote, the right answer was over here, but they were really just lying and, you know, trying to get power over here. Then you could work within that in that chasm. But, you know, the, the Tea Party folks I, I knew and have reported with, they thought they were protecting freedom. Um, they thought that they, you know, just like the resistance to Trump does now, they they saw their effort to stop Obama from doing anything as part of a of a great, important moral crusade. And I think that one of the one of the difficulties that I see in, in politics now, and I'm curious if somebody wants to, to be in politics, how you think about it, is how do you manage that tension between trying to empathize and, and, and see people's sort of moral motivations at their best and also recognizing that and, and being honest about when, you know, those moral motivations are going to hurt people or when the policy they lead to is really a bad one or when the person who leads them to support is not a good human it's a tough space i could i could see i could absolutely see that there's going to be people who will ethically feel that their ethics are they're more to the right and they feel they're right in the right place and and uh, and people more center and center left and we feel that we are right but this this alternative facts thing is just where lies are just cloaked up as is another way of looking at it it gets very difficult i mean alfred again, again talked about this in his book where do you go if untruths are being said well that's the truth you know um we have we have, can go all the way back to to people who denied things that have happened before but it, it, that's a scary place when you can't actually say this is a truth anymore because they say well there's another way of looking at this and you just spin it around so um it, it is a worrying place where politics can go for but i do feel this is our key century this is the century we either make it work for the whole world or we forget it for humanity what, what was your take on the British election we just had? So the Tories are supposed to win 100 seats of us. That was supposed to be the landslide, and they actually lost seats. So that – it muddies the whole thing. They were looking for a hard, very aggressive Brexit, um, jump out of everything. Politics is as complicated as it looks. That's the thing I've worked out. And a lot of people do not have – in your country, our country, France, anywhere in the world, they don't 
feel they have enough spare time to go through and sift through all the different facts and, and figures, a lot of people are going to vote emotionally. And uh, I think a lot of people were suffering from the austerity program that was put in from 2008. And people then said, we're going to blame uh, Europe about this. That was the more right-wing elitists over there. And they were blaming uh, Europe about it. And so when it came to this referendum, some people said, well, we're going to vote to move out of Europe because that's really going to help us. And it isn't going to help because gonna, leaving the single market is just not going to help people get jobs. It's going to make it much harder. So this, I think this election, which is supposed to be a power grab, there was no way that it was going to make it stronger for the Tory party in the negotiations from Europe because it wasn't Europe it doesn't change anything for as regards the rest of Europe as they negotiate with them. It was just a power grab and uh, it backfired on them. And I think people are saying, no, you know, they were supposed to put 350 million pounds a week into the National Health Service. That was what that was the big deal that they put on the side of their battle bus. And then they said, oh, no, that was a lie immediately after the election said, no, we didn't mean to do that. that we just lied, I suppose. Alternative fact. I don't know. It was on the side of their battle bus. And now you can't even find it on their website. So this was the Leave campaign. It's just a completely muddy thing. We've had two referendum. We should mention that two referendum on, on the European Union. And the first one we won by 66 percent uh, to 34. And the second one we lost by 48 to 52. So it's, you know, the country is completely split down the middle now. It's a, a confused country. I think a lot of people are saying, where are you going to with Brexit? You have no plan. This pull out from the single market. The single market is a great thing to be in, to be able to trade with, to get better jobs. And uh, we're moving towards a very difficult uh, economic future. So we're talking here about you making a jump into into a pretty different profession, and it's a good bridge to something I really loved reading about in your book, where you're talking about how you began performing at your first Fringe Festival. You have a very lovely passage where you discuss the way you mentally got yourself ready to do something you hadn't done and, and put on a show at the Fringe Festival. And you talk about borrowing confidence from your from your future self. Can you talk through what that is and 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 how it worked for you? Well, I was going to join the Cambridge Footlights. Um, three out of the six members of Monty Python were in the Cambridge Footlights. It's a very famous organization. Oxford had a similar comedy group, but not quite as set up as Cambridge. So once I discovered this, this group existed, this comedy sketch group, um, and Python were very much people who'd come through that, and a lot of comedy people had come through I thought, I will go to Cambridge and do that. And then I decided not to work. Um, because I thought that would be cooler and girls might find that interesting because I could be more of a rebel. So this was my kind of lame idea for not working. Just working hard, having getting exams after exams, passing exams didn't seem very interesting. So I couldn't get to Cambridge, so I went to Sheffield University instead, which was a wonderful university, and it was great to go north because uh, it's up in, in, up in Yorkshire, and I did accounting and financial management with mathematics, but I dropped that almost immediately because I just wanted to go to this. If I wasn't going to do the Footlights, I was going to go to the Edinburgh Festival. If people don't know about it, it's a fringe, there's a main festival, a fringe festival, a jazz festival, a, a book festival, poetry festival, lots of different festivals all happening at once and this is a good place to be seen the television people come up from london the critics come up from london and so i thought i could get discovered there but i when i got to shefford university i said who goes to the edinburgh fringe festival i'd like to help i'd like to sweep up i got to get there that's my place that's my mecca to go to and they said no um nobody goes there we lost money about five years ago so no one goes and i thought i'm gonna have to take a show up myself so i just sat on my bed and i thought I, I have no idea how to do this so i'm going to i sat on my bed and i thought it through and i thought logically if i assume that i've already taken a show to the edinburgh fringe festival then i will have the confidence as if i have taken a show to the edinburgh fringe festival and then i can go around and, and recruit people and say yep we're going absolute no there's no 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 ifs no buts um, it's a bit like America. May I was influenced, as I say in the book, by America going to the moon. You said, you know, Kennedy said we're going to the moon. If you watch um, From the Earth to the Moon, the HBO series, Tom Hanks uh, executive produced series, they they they're all going. We're going to the moon. I didn't know we we were, we were just going to get uh, Alan, Alan Shepard into space. Oh, we're going to the moon. We don't even know how to do it. They. they they didn't even know how to do orbits around the Earth. That you guys, the Americans, who I was. Well, it was linking totally with us when I was a kid growing up. You hadn't even got the, that going on, and the Russians had got it. And so I was totally involved in that space race. But you got to the moon. You worked out how to do it. And so 
I think America was borrowing confidence from its future self back then. That's what I did sitting on a bed in my tiny small way of taking a show to the Edinburgh Festival. And I took a show there and I persuaded some people to go there and we, it was a terrible show, but we did it. And once we'd done it, you could do a second one that could get better. And what does it mean to borrow confidence in that way? Does it mean you, you, you act confident? Is it something yes. you're able to emotionally do inside yourself or is it a public? Yeah, I was, it was, it was a bit of an acting role, I suppose, where I was saying, uh, yep, we're going to Edinburgh. My, you know, I just, well, I locked it in. I, I wasn't playing a role of someone. I was more like, I just assumed once you've done it, you have done it. And so just act like you've already done it. Um, I don't know. I don't think I'd anything, done anything quite like that before, but I just decided that was the way to approach. If I said, look, I might be going to the Edinburgh Festival. We might be doing things. We might be hiring a venue. There's so many hurdles to do that, that might wouldn't work. So you had to be absolutely definite on it. Uh, and, and even if no one else was going to go, I was going to do it on my own. I was going to be there. I would play all the roles myself. That's, that's the attitude. It was, uh, failure is not an option. There you go. There's another one. There's another NASA one, but, uh, it was just, you just had to go and do it. And I had to believe it and, and act like that and, uh, believe that I could pull it off. So I did pull it off, but it just wasn't a very good show. And well, uh, it seems to have turned out okay, though. Yeah. Uh, in the end. Subsequently, you, you were, you were a street performer and, and you talk a lot about, the that as sort of the base of your later comedy and and your later career what did you learn from street performing what do you learn going out in front of people and 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 forcing them asking them convincing them to stop their day and come look at you for a minute what are the lessons of that um it's an unusual performance thing no one it's the hardest performing i think that anyone has to do if you're ever in a theater or in a, a music venue or any type of venue, people are, who are in that room are there probably to see you or the show or, or whatever that's going to happen. They probably paid some money to come and even if not, they're, they're in the room. But if, they're, if you're not in the room, if there is no room and they haven't exchanged any money, they haven't committed at all and you're trying to entice them in, it's just so hard, which I try and elaborate on in the book. It, it's, you had to, Attention spans drop. Adults become children. Children become animals. Children just run amok. They just don't know what's going on. And and adults are just watching you for a bit. Then they're looking over. Then they're chatting. Then they're looking at you again, which you wouldn't do in a theater. You'd just sit there and you'd politely, please pay attention. You might be getting bored, but you, you might whisper to other people, but you wouldn't just openly chat, turn around, play with your kids, you know, go off and have a coffee in the middle of it. That's what can happen. So you have to, you had to be so interesting. And it was very difficult. And I said, um, it, it almost became like Tom and Jerry out there, uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons where everything had to be quite extreme and, and over the top and people are juggling fire out there. And if you're just going out and doing comedy, you've almost got nothing. You just have to be terribly interesting. So I, I died a lot. I, I did a lot of dying going out with a certain amount of confidence. I'd already done three Edinburgh festivals, which is a, those are difficult things to do. And then I was failing with my partner, Rob Ballard on the streets and, uh, we, we just did, Bad show after bad show after bad show and people would wander away. And when you go backstage, when there's no backstage, you just wander under the porticos. It's where My Fair Lady was set. If anyone knows the film My Fair Lady and, and it's got this St. Paul's church, it's a famous portico with big columns. And that's where we all hang out. And they still hang out there today. The performers are still there. The Street Performers Association is still happening. So I learned in the end how to stand in front of thin air, even with no one on the big West Piazza Portico and start a performance to no one. I could start and I could be in the end interesting enough to get a show going. Again, it was confidence. I wasn't borrowing confidence from anyone. I just developed the confidence to do that. You talk in the book about having been a, a shy kid. How did you have the, the fortitude to walk out in front of that kind of social rejection every day? Well, by the time I got to, was it 23, 24, 25, I had developed confidence. I just feel my base layer was shy. Like, um, I think I'm very boring. My base level is boring and shy. And I've just, I put, tried to put layers of interestingness on top of that so that if someone says, are you boring or are you shy? I can go, no, I am not very shy at all. And I, and I seem like not a shy person. I have an, enough social layers that I can try being witty or funny to someone. And if they're blanking me on that, I'll just pass the time of day. Or if they push back and get aggressive with me, I will, I will block that as well. So, but that's just the base level. It's like, you know, if, if, if I am a layer cake, then 
And I think that's at the base of a lot of people, this shyness. I don't know. Are there very confident three-year-olds who stay confident all through their lives? I'm not sure. I know I developed comedy as a social tool at school um, so that girls would go, hey, he's kind of funny. Um, but then once I started doing it professionally, I, I switched it off rather. I, I toned it right down because you can't go around getting on buses, getting into cars, trains, whatever, and, and just being trying to be funny all the time. Well, some people do, but I, I, I found that I couldn't do that. So I just switched it off again. So that was kind of weird. I developed it up and then I toned it down. Sometimes I just switch on and go into funny mode when I'm in a cafe or something. But um, so, so that's interesting. So you're saying that once you started doing comedy professionally, the degree to which you performed privately for the people around you diminished. Yes. And I think that'd be a lot of people. That's a lot of us become, you, you know, tears of the clown or whatever i don't know it's not tears but it's a um comedians can be quite quiet off stage on stage they turn on we turn on so bright we have to be full on there's no way you can go on stage and say i'm gonna do a 50 percent show today and see if the audience and the book is like that i'm sure they'll ask me back if i only put it out you have to put it out at full volume you know not full volume full intensity try and be as funny and interesting as you can be um but the idea of coming off and continuing that on is seems wrong in a way. Or people just go, oh, we, we've got lines. Comedians have lines like, he's never off. Oh, he's never off. She's never off. Yeah. So when you walk off of a stage, are you, are you energized or are you exhausted by that interaction with the crowd? Uh, energized and exhausted. Uh, sorry, I'm doing both. Because no, I, that's I, do, fair. I know when I get ill, you see, when I get ill and then you sort of get somewhat better and then during the day you've got a cold but you gradually feel pretty good before you go on. By the time I come off the stage, I am so empty that I'm back to square one. It takes so much energy out of you. This, you, you, you can't really sense it and until when you get ill. You see, my God, that's just drained it all out of me, all this energy. So um, I, but I, I'm energized, but I'm not energized that I have to stay up all night if it's a, if I've entertained myself above all, that's, that's the key thing. If I've done a show like a normal show and that's fine. If I've been funny, if I've been funny in a different language, that's a very good show. Even just making one, I had lived at the, uh, the, um, festival in Avignon and I said something funny in French, uh, that was an ad lib and I just thought, Wow, that's pretty good. So I was kind of pleased with that, even though it was only one line, but I just thought I'm ad libbing in French. And, and make it, it made me and my brother laugh our heads off. So that was enough. If I can make my brother laugh, that's the, that's the hardest audience. Those of us who've watched you for years, we see the sort of output of, of, of the work. What is the creative process behind it like? What, what is the space in which you do your creating? What is your process behind writing jokes? Sort of what aren't, what aren't we seeing and, and how routinized is it? How, what was the last word? Routinized. Routinized is it? Is it that you always write your jokes at 6 a.m. at the mahogany desk in your attic or? Is that a, you've got, you've verb, you've verbized routine into routinized? Is I hope, that, I hope that's a real thing and I didn't just do it on the fly. No, I think that's America must have done that with you because I don't think we've got it yet across the pond. Um, but well, I, this I, is us giving it to you right now. Yes. Thank you very much. I now know that it's, you can verbize nouns if you wish to. Um, it's in our constitution. You can verbize anything. I think you can. I think you can do anything you want. Go build it. Um, I can't even remember what the question was now. <laughs> what was the question? When you write. Oh, yes. It... What's my routine? Yeah. Um, my routinized way. Um, well, it's this, this work in progress thing. Which I got from America, the idea of doing work in progress shows before, which is like previews, I suppose, like Broadway did it, West End did it. Um, and I just do now about three months worth of previews before I do the show. And in the previews I was doing last time I did them in LA, San Francisco and New York, did two shows a night, an hour each, probably about 50 minutes each, just swap the audience over, then go in again. And I'd do about 40 minutes of it would be improvised, just trying to find things that going with this, going with that. What about that? What about this? Really just skating around some ideas written down. I could talk about, uh, yeah, cheese, cheese. What is with cheese? Why cheese? Why not cheese? You know, you just see if you can find anything with cheese. Um, and uh, and then if something worked and got a bit of traction, like political traction, but comedic traction, then I'd go, oh, I could I can work on that the next time. 
And uh, but the ideas that I write down on write write down on on the notes section of my iPhone actually these days, um, very few of them get become the actual thing at the end. It's usually other ideas that I have out there in the zone. Because once you're in the zone, you can come up with wonderful comedic ideas. The best ideas I've come up with have been on stage. So everything is actually improvised in a show at some point. But then I mold it. I, do, I call it verbal sculpting. You just keep sculpting each time you go on. You re-sculpt the clay, the verbal clay, into uh, a, a shape that you've been working on. So if I stole your iPhone and open up your notes section, would I see like cheese question mark or would I see sort of sketched out jokes? Or are, are you writing down directions? Or are you writing down bits? Um, no, it's just headlines. Um, I'll see if I can... Because you, you know, I could put a second password. You see, on the notes section, and then you couldn't get into that either, unless you. Um, oh, stand-up idea. Here we go. Dogs. Oh, dogs are always sure. Yeah, dogs are always sure. Woof, woof, woof. I was running because I've run my marathons, and I ran past. And when you run past dog, you know, dogs in a house, they go woof, 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 and they're always very sure. This is what I thought I should do something on this because the dogs are always going woof like. It's burglar, burglar. I'm sure danger, danger, danger will run. Burglar, woof, woof, woof. It's never woof, woof, uh, <laughs> woof. Not sure, woof. Uh, be be wary, woof. There's there's some woof. Be because you know, we would go. Hang on, I'm not sure what's going on. Who is that? Someone outside. We check first, but the dogs are no. They're short. They're, it's, it's full level woof. There is someone. He's out. It's and, and then he's gone. And then the dogs are woofing on for a bit, and then they go. Well, I, I thought he was going to come in and burgle everything. But anyway, he's, he's not. So I'll just stop woofing. But they're just completely on one. They have on woof and off woof. And I just <laughs> thought if I dig around in that, because they're surety, maybe, you know, maybe it's like Donald Trump. Can I complicate your, your idea of dogs? Well, so I have a dog who is uh, – I have two dogs actually who are inveterate woofers. Um, and, and, and they woof almost entirely to manage their own uncertainty about the world. It's like they they are terrified. They do not know what to do. So woofing. Yes. So uh, on noises on or for anything. It, really anything, but people. Anything they think people might come. It's just straight up woofing because they have no idea what to do with that situation. I, I I've never I've never met less sure creatures than my terriers. Um, but the more confused they get, the more likely I are to just begin barking uh, maniacally and in terror. And, and horses could do this as well. Horses are very powerful children. I did a Western. I filmed a Western and I was, I was training on a horse and, and, uh, and the horse was spooked all day. I just was on a spooked horse all, well, for an hour's worth of, of training. And I said, well, what is spooking it? And they, and they said anything. The wind in the trees can spook it. A paper bag can spook it. A person, a dog, a cat, another horse, a white horse. Oh, that was it. The, the guy said, the white horse. The horse doesn't like white horses. Okay. So. So a dark horse doesn't like is that that's good to know. Is it the white horse? Yeah, or a different color. So, so which colors? Any color, and paper bags, and th- and he just said just anything. The the, the horses are like enormous uh, dogs, and they get get spooked at anything. And then you're sitting on top of them, which is weird because you have to just go no no just hang on hang on it's okay it's just a paper bag, and horses go what's a paper bag? He's go well take me too long to explain but you put veg in it. So let me track a joke back with you. How did how, how did cake or death happen? Cake or death came from extreme extremists, the 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 the, the, the um, religious extremists, to go around doing hellish things, and then I realized. So if you're talking about that, let's talk about christian religious extremists we used to do it in the uk or around europe we were burning protestants then we were burning catholics we burned protestants at the stake for reading a bible in english translating a bible in english reading you know this was the thing the protestant thing that came from martin luther um what hell did we do for reading a book just translating it it's crazy but that's what we did and now we've calmed down hopefully in mostly in the christian religion um but we used to do that and now other people do it but i and i and i led into yeah now we have church of england and i was brought up without religion in my uh, at home but went to a boarding school after mum died and they had a built-in church of england thing a lot of boarding schools do in britain and church of england said this and that and you would have a Church of England vicar who was all they were always quite nice and they'd have a village fate and so just the idea of you couldn't have a Church of England extremist you couldn't have a church, fundamentalist fundamental in Church of England because it's all tea and cakes and that's where it was tea, tea and cake or death and tea or cake or death didn't really work tea and cake or death so it turned into cake or death cake do you want cake or death 
And people go, uh, uh, cake, cake would be bad. Yes, cake. All right, this cake for this. Not death. No, you want cake. Okay, this guy. Are you, are you a cake person? Are you, or you will die? Which, which one you want? Cake. All right, you're cake. Ah, oh, they're all going to do cake, aren't they? Yeah, it's just someone not thinking through their extremist, um, values. But, and- but how did you come up with that formulation for it? Cause it, it is such a, Strange. Just like that. I just worked it out because that's a slightly different version of what I did before. I was just refining the thing. I just talk it through and then I play chess with myself, group improv, which, you know, you amazing improvisers in America, uh, in, in Canada, I've performed with all around the world. In Britain, we've got great ones. And if you've done group improv and then you can do it by yourself where you just play chess with yourself, which I quite often do on stage where you say, uh, I'm the king of China. I'd like some, uh, some soup. Uh, I haven't got any soup, mate. No soup. I'm a, I'm a king. Well, yeah, it's no soup. What, what do you want me to do? You know, and then you just have this conversation. You keep it going with the guy. Well, uh, kings always get this. Well, they might do, mate, but you know, we, I'll, I'll make your soup out of, uh, I'll, I'll make it out of gravel. Do you want gravel soup? Uh, uh, yes, I suppose so. I suppose. Well, it's going to be hard. It's going to get stuck in your throat. You're going to die. All right. Well, I don't want, you know, you just get, and if maybe you don't get anywhere, like that's not really going anywhere. So you'd have to change tack, but I will, I will go out and dig around until you go, ah, yes, cake or death. Cause cake, I initially said tea or cake or death and it didn't, it didn't have the right ring, but then cake or death did. And then I went off with that. And then I had this guy who was giving out cake and we're going to run out of cake and I got five bits. And then someone says, death. Yeah, you want that? No, I meant cake. I mean, I just made a mistake. Well, you're lucky I'm Church of England. Otherwise I would have held you to that because you got it wrong. Then you've just, you've got idiots. You put idiots into these hellish situations and it's, it's quite a good mix for me because, well, it's my, it's heavily Python influenced my comedy. And if you think of Python initially, it was very silly, beautifully silly and quite often just silly for silliness's sake. Um, and then they put more and more political life of Brian is very social political, religious political, um, human values, talking about unions, human behavior, interaction, and you get some great thoughts out of it. You can, you can see the schism of religion in 10 minutes when uh, Brian runs off and it's the gourd or it's the, is it the sandals you're supposed to hold up in the air and they're all calling him the Messiah. So if you can, if you can do something that's really fun and silly and also have a point in it, that's just a, a wonderful thing. So that's what I try and dig around for these days. I start with human sacrifice now. And, you know, that's the, the, the force majeure show has got human sacrifice. That's where I start the show where I say some human sacrifice boiled down is somebody back in the day said the weather is bad. The crops are failed. The gods obviously hate us. So we're going to kill Steve. And it's just an insane idea. Where the hell did anyone come up with that with? And they did it. They did it all around the world. Humans did it all around the world without phoning each other up and saying, are you killing people to make the crops better? Yeah, yeah, we do. Is it working? Not really, but we're keeping it going because it's a good power tool in the political craziness that we live in. You know, but th- we did do it. So that's weird that we all got to this place that's completely bonkers and outrageous and hellish and murderous. And But we, you know, human sacrifice happened all around the world. A lot of your comedy seems to have a like a history buff anthropological bent to it. Are you are, are you big are you big into those subjects in private time? Well, I didn't like history at school because you kept you kept saying write an essay on this. Right? Why did the First World War start? We kept getting that one. Um, so why did it start? Well, well, if you know the First World War, you'll know that it's a whole mixture of alliances and the Kaiser was aggressive. I've just played Edward the Seventh, who was uncle to the Kaiser. The Kaiser's the grandson of Queen Victoria. And you've got all these jostling for position things in, in European imperialism, who's, you know, Germany didn't have enough colonies and Britain had, we had all these, you know, all this kind of stuff going on. And so you've got the black hand movement in Serbia and they, they are going and they start attacking, um, uh, France Ferdinand, not the, uh, not the band, but the guy. And he was actually trying to do something more positive, uh, as a, as a monarch, as an imperial monarch, as a, uh, uh, what an emperor. And he was trying to actually make things slightly better, but they, they killed him and then, so uh, Habsburg Empire goes against him, Austria-Hungarian against the Serbs. Then Russia comes in, linking up with the Serbian people. And then Germany comes in with the Austrians. And then it all, you know. And then Belgium apparently blocked. Belgium put up a pretty good fight and that brought the British in. Um, anyway, it, it just, it all snowballed one after the other. But I didn't like, I could talk about it now, but it's, 
it's whatever it was. Uh, but I do find that history plus the change in society multiplied by the change in technology equals the future. That's what I've, that's the equation I've worked out. If you look at the repeats of humanity. Hold on, I need you to repeat that equation. History plus the change in society, all multiplied by the change in technology, equals the future. If you look at the repeats of humanity, we keep doing good things and bad things over and over again. In like, in, if you strip out, learn what to strip out, you know, the clothing, the this thing, the that thing, the whatever, there's certain things like warlords, be they monarchs, be they this, be they that, be they drug lords, be they whatever, they, they keep coming up, bubbling up to the force. Someone uses fear to get control of power. And so the bad things and there's good things. You keep having a Nelson Mandela, you keep having a Mahandas Gandhi, the uh, Mother Teresa, you go back in life, there are men and women who've been very strong and 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 brilliant and, and selfless. Uh, a lot of the women have been suppressed in in, uh, in history, particularly out of the Christian religion. So so look for those. Look for the good things that we've done. You've got a song in America, eliminate the negative, accentuate the positive. That's what we have to do in humanity this century to make it work for 7 billion people. We've got to be doing this. We've got to be heading this direction because uh, if we invented dynamite in 1860 and the hydrogen, not the atom bomb, but the hydrogen bomb in 1950, only 90 years later and it's 70 years on from that, what on earth have we got out there now? So we've got to be heading towards a place where all all 7 billion people have a fair chance in life, I think. Um, and uh, I think anyone in the world would think everyone, that's, that's got to be the human right. We all have a fair chance in life. I want to go back to how you think about human history here for a minute. Because I, say, I like how you don't respond to anything I say. <laughs> you just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you say that. It's like I'm talking. You just go, yes. Okay. I, I, I feel like the job of the interviewer is to be sort of like a wall that interesting ideas bounce off of. No, I'm, I like I'm, the idea where you say, really? Because I thought this, that, and the other. And then you challenge me on it. And then, but, yeah. Well, I actually am going to challenge you on it. That's why I want to go back. Ah, um, okay. I, I would say that I'm often responding to something in the middle of your answer. I sort of have to pick one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I see. So you got to go back to one I want to go points. back I want to go back to determinism. So so what you were just So talking, what is the definition of determinism? So you, what you were just as a as a model of human history what you were just saying is that you can see the same human behavior types emergent in any era. What they have to they work seem with, to be, yeah. yeah. What they have to work with are different technologies, different yes. communication mediums, sort of yes. different geopolitical systems. Yes. But you have your—it's uh, too simplistic to call them saints. But you—you you, you have people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King. You have warlords. You have populists. You have—and it's an—it's an interesting way to 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 think about human beings that the world around us is changing, but that perhaps we are not. And and I wanted to see if that's your view of it. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you. It's 10,000 years. If you take civilization, boom, 10,000 years. Make, make the numbers easy. Uh, from the caves to now. Back in the caves, there were people like us sitting there in a cave saying, so I, I'm doing a thing. I'm going to call it a podcast in the future, but just sit to me in the cave. Tell the guys, other guys in the cave. Some of these guys want to listen to this. Tell us what you think. Well, I think some of these caves are not built very well. I think we're going to do better on the cave front. I think we've got more communication. Fire is good. Jeff invented fire. Well done, Jeff. You know, that was going on back then. And, uh, and our brains haven't changed. We know this. We know we change over millions of years, not over the last 10,000 years. And that's it for, for, um, you know, anything that's called civilized is just over 10,000 years. So we will not have changed. You, you take a, a, a person now and you take them in a space machine, time machine back to 10,000 years and put them in a cave. They will be, they will find some people who are not terribly uh, sharp and working things out, and they're going to be some very switched on people. They would be the wise man, the wise man of the village. You remember in the in the Magnificent Seven, there was the wise man of the village who didn't live in the village. He lived up the hill, probably because he was kind of wise. In case the the um, uh, Eli Wallach came back, and uh, he'd be up the hill somewhere else. But he he would stroke his beard and said, "You must go and get some what do you call the mercenaries, the guys. You just got to go and get your Brenner because he has no hair and looks cool." Does that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a bit. So what do you think is if we all have the same hardware, right? I, it, it's funny because what you're making me think of, I, I did a podcast a couple weeks ago with a philosopher named um, Anthony Appiah, and, and he's the author of this fascinating book called Cosmopolitanism. And he argues that the, the central task that human beings face uh, today, or one of them at least, is how to – Deal with a world that is so global, that is so big, where our, our, where our actions, our moral actions can affect so many, given that we are built for such small groups, small tribes, for a world in which we very – until 200 years ago, it was extremely hard to know what was happening 
200 miles away, 500 miles away, much less thousands of miles away. Why do you think then that we do have these people um, sort of in every age who react to it so similarly? Uh, instead of this sort of crazy age turning us all into something different, the same versions of us keep reappearing. Why are we so persistent throughout it? Why has it not changed us more? I think it's too quick. I think it's too quick. If you, if you think that 1800s, 1700s, very agrarian, still 1800s, steam, you take steam coming in, industrial revolution, that kicks it all up. So what's that? About 1830, 1930, 2030, about 200 years. It's too quick. We've just gone boom, 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 boom. And it's exponential and it's a real rocket ride. You know, I remember arguing with someone saying, someone was saying they wanted an iPhone. Someone's child wanted an iPhone. I said, I said, I was trying to put them off saying, me and your dad, when we were kids, it was a tin can with a piece of string. And I thought, actually, it was a tin can and a piece of string. That's what we have. Apart from the built in phones, we actually play with tin cans and bits of string. It's just, it's, it's gone too fast. Um, I don't know, because some things have changed and have moved, but then, Different leaders get in and things go more extreme to the most extremist edges, which is a beguiling place, the, the, the extremist politics, because they have a simplistic politics. Do one thing, do two things, and everything will be fine. Build a wall, hate all Muslims, everything will be fine. And it never works. Didn't work in the 30s, won't work now. Unfortunately, things are as complicated as they look. But I think the reason we're having difficulty with it is, is it has moved at such a charging place. If, if we only change over millions of years, if, if animals only change over millions of years, then in 200 years, we've had so much change. I don't know how we'd slow it down because we're in love. We're addicted to this change. You know, the, the, the iPhone, we want a new thing for our phones immediately. I think about this a lot. Do you think having iPhones, having constant access to social media and all the information on the internet is good for us? <sighs> Swings around of us, isn't it? I, I think. I think in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. You know, you can learn how to save a life on the internet. You can learn how to build a bomb on the internet. Um, you know, people can put out real truthful facts out on the internet. People can put out lies on the internet and cloak them and make them look like truth. Um, it's, I was looking at politics because someone who wants, who wants to go into politics, but actually feels that politics looks like a real rough ride. As you go back through the ages, every age actually looks the same politically. There's no point where you say politically at this time was fantastic. Everyone just got on great. There isn't one. I just think if you look into the history of any time and what's politically going on, it just looks like as rough as all roughness in any particular age. But I do think I come back to this is this is a key century for us. We make it work for everyone, or we forget it. We we got to change something. But heading backwards, building walls, and and saying let's hate this group of people, hate that group of people. That's not going to sort it out. You wrote something in your book that I thought was very powerful, which was that you had not known um, that your father and your your late mother knew that you had been dressing up in her clothing until your father did a documentary just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And that that was evidence for you that, that that this was deeper in you, that it had gone very – that it had gone even before your mother's death when you were three. And I'm curious what the experience of seeing that um, on a screen was like. Well, that was interesting. I'd say my mother's death was at six and I knew from about four or five that I wanted to wear a dress, you know, which later turned out to – hey, I must be a transgender guy. Um, but so I realized before I knew that she was ill and before she died. But dad confirmed this – on the documentary when Sarah Townsend, the director, asked him in this questioning. And I, he'd never said that to me. He didn't even, when I came out, he was very groovy when I came out and he said, I'm okay with it. And if your mother was still alive, I think she'd be okay with it. But he didn't mention that point, I think, because it's just not top of his hit parade to, to mention it. Um, it, it, it helped because, well, I, I just think this, this is all genetics. This is, this is what I say. I think I have the genetic piece that is, that some women have, some women don't have. Some women, uh, wish to wear makeup, heels, skirts. That's what they want. And some women don't. And I just have that bit that other women do. And it seems to be exactly the same genetic code because my feelings seem to be the same. I, I, I didn't watch them and think, ah, I'm going to track that. I just felt this, the same. So, that's what I thought. But having dad mention that, it just, well, 
uh, the whole document. This is this book is Believe Me, the Me version of Believe, and then there's Believe the documentary, which is uh, also available out there. Which if you hopefully if you read one, you see the other. If you see one, you can you can read the other. It it has different parts of the story, and um, yeah, there was there was stuff that was revealed to me in in the documentary that I didn't realize. The whole fact that I'm trying to do everything to get my mother back. That that came at the end of the documentary, and that hit me as a wave because I it was like a subconscious me talking. It wasn't like a conscious me. It was very it was odd. It's the only time it's ever happened to me. Why do you think you, the the documentary cracked those kinds of questions open for you? you? Talk you talk also in the book about how you've not always been comfortable with that kind of self analysis, but that something sort of late in the game a lot came out in that experience. I think I think being. Maybe being transgender and also being in the comedy business, uh, I thought initially I could use comedy to make, you know, to talk about, hey, I wear a dress, I wear a makeup, hey, what the hell? And I could be relaxed and, and, and throw away about it so people would calm down about it. But it also meant that I would put up maybe some barriers and I wouldn't keep going back and, and self-analyzing myself, which I did initially lying on my bed trying to analyze why I was thinking and things. I didn't think there was anything to gain from that. It's just that Sarah kept asking me the question and kept digging around to try and find something, which is what you do in documentaries, until I suddenly had this thought that was, like, oh, uh, oh, I, I actually think I know what I'm talking about. And you, if you watch it in the documentary, you can see the bit, the piece. It, it, it just, it's, it's odd because it, it, it kind of throws me because it, it just, uh, I came out with this reasoning of why I'm trying to do all this stuff. My my guess is that in Dress to Kill, you were the first transgender person a lot of people, certainly in America, saw. I think that was true for me watching it uh, when it came out. What was that like knowing that one of the things that was happening as you released these specials was that you were introducing people to a way of living, a way of being that maybe they didn't know about before? I didn't see it that way. I mean, I came out just because uh, when I felt my career was taking up, some people thought, oh, I got known because I wore lipstick. And then everyone said, hey, let's laugh at the guy's comedy just because he's wearing lipstick, which is completely, un you know, illogical. Who the hell says, oh, the guy's wearing a dress. Let's laugh at him, even if he's not funny. I was already doing this funny stuff, white male stand up. And then I thought, I better tell them I'm transgender because I'd already come out to my friends. Otherwise, I'll be in this thing, this secret. And, you know, you, you're not telling anyone. A lot of people have lived entire lives. And, you know, throughout the centuries and millennia, a lot of transgender people would have just not mentioned it and gay and lesbian people the same kind of pressures so i just thought i'll tell them i'll tell a, the observer newspaper back in britain once it's out there i can't put it back in the box and i'll just have to deal with it so when i came over to america i just thought i'm gonna do this straight away i'll arrive wearing makeup because i used to do boy mode girl mode boy mode girl mode back in britain and then when i got to america i just thought i'll start in girl mode and uh and then people said, ah, that's what you do. You do this drag thing. And I said, well, it's not actually drag because I wear it every day. And uh, it all got a bit confusing. And some people thought I was taking off because of that. And I'm sure it did get a certain more attention and action and questioning. Um, so it created a certain spin that I wasn't trying to create. I was just trying to talk silly Python-influenced stand-up comedy um, but I just have to be wearing, in Dress to Kill particularly, uh, a, a lot of blue eyeshadow, I must admit. You, you talk about this idea of girl mode and, and boy mode and, and that you go through different ones for, for different periods. Can, can, tell, tell me a bit about that. What, what do those mean to you? It's not really a period thing. It's not really a day thing. I mean, I thought in the morning I could get up and flip a coin and say girl mode or boy mode. But then I spent quite a lot of my time being in boy mode. So I'm going through girl mode at the moment. And But I also want to play roles where I, I look more physically boy so i may as well do that and i say boy girl rather than man woman because it, it seems a lot heavier in man woman and the genetics do start if people really know their genetics you are we are all girls and then some of us get co coded boys uh after eight weeks i think it is in the, the fetus gets coded so it this this whole thing that we go on about the men women men with the whole separation other animals don't give a monkeys about it you know um if a tiger's attacking you you're not going is this a girl tiger that's attacking me or a boy tiger i don't know can i ask can i check how do you do it? well we could only really check ah it's a tiger you know you don't it's just no one really gives a damn about it um young boys and young girls you can't really tell them apart older older men and older women also they can both sections can tr cross dress if they wish to 
with impunity and no one would know. And it's only in, in, the, in this middle bit that we get obsessed by it because we're here and we're thinking about things. So, it, um, yeah. In Dress to Kill, you had a very, um, you had a very, I thought, interesting formulation, which again, you talk about here about being an executive transvestite. Where, yes. where did that idea come from? Well, it came from an article in New York. I was playing in New York and there was a guy, they said, we found a guy, he's living in, it wasn't in um, Central Park. It was in another park that's in the the, the Tri-State area somewhere around. And they said he's living in a cave and uh, we found him. He's got loads of women's shoes in there. So he's probably a transvestite. And I said, well, okay, if he is, then he is a weirdo transvestite because I'm an executive transvestite. I'm traveling business class. I, you know, we... There's all this section that if you're transvestite, you're also going to be like that. Or it, it used to be a joke, you know, it used to be a standard joke and might, might still be in American television that I think there is in You Got Mail or one of the, you know, very popular film that it says it could be an axe murder, it could be this, could be a transvestite. You know, it's thrown in as one of the things along with axe murder. And I was trying to say, no, executive transvestite or action transvestite. These are two little buzz lines, political ideas that I came up with, little you know, two word things that I could throw out there and say, I'm executive because I am traveling business class. Thank you very much. And I, I used to come through, you know, immigration and they would, and I was born in Yemen as well, Arabic country. So they would go, hang on, you know, who's your, why you, and it's, this is a guy and he's got lipstick on, he's got heels and he's born in Yemen. And then they'd put the two to two together and they go, actually, that, that doesn't make any sense. So they'd let me go in well, because I was a transvestite, but it just confused people that, so that and the action transvestite, because I said, I'm, you know, I've got a lot of boy. I was wanting to be in special forces when I was a kid. I wanted to be in the Marines or the paratroops and then get into our SAS. And that was my definite plan. Don't know if I would have been able to do it, but that was my plan. Instead, I feel I've done civilian special forces, which is, you know, over 80 marathons, gigs in four languages came out 32 years ago. But what, what I think is so, what I also was so powerful about that idea that I think just human beings could learn a lot from is it just in a very simple, elegant way, what pushed like pushed people out of reducing you to any one thing right by adding other things onto it, it's like no it's a human being living in different ways like you take a lot of business flights and and other people people do those things and it often seems to me that part of the horror of these conversations when they go really awry they just go down to to this essentials i'm like in the i don't know if it's you've got mail but like the joke you say where it could be a transvestite like that would be the one thing a person is yeah well, exactly. That is, uh, and, and I've talked about this in the book. Talking is a very important thing, even more important than I thought than if, you know, I'm a comedian or working in comedy, so I could be throwaway with stuff and that would help. But in fact, this thing I talked about when I was filming and I was playing a um, bisexual uh, transgender person who was wearing a big dress and a big uh, turban and I'm walking along uh, an ex-Soviet airfield in Hungary near Lake Balaton and there were a lot of Hungarian extras there in in German uniforms because it's World War II setting and they were sitting there and they were obviously talking about me as I walked by because it's you know it's a slip road for a you know it's you know taxi way so it's a big old thing I'm just striding along in this big dress and I turned around to them and I said good afternoon in uh, in Hungarian to them because I knew that word and they all shut up and I just thought ah oh, by talking I've humanized myself they thought okay there's a guy wearing a dress but he said hello to us in Hungarian and we'll shut up now and that was an interesting thing just the more and more you know gay and lesbian uh, communities have, have led the way in this by coming out and saying we are business people we do this we do that we're librarians we are trainers we fly airplanes whatever it is we do that's what that's what they did and then transgender we had to catch up on that and and when we can and when lgbt plus when we can hit boring then we've made it when we hit boring then we've made it that's my analysis of it when when someone says i'm gay i'm transgender and people say yeah I, so what but what do you do oh i'm a, i um i'm a librarian oh i'm a i'm a i'm an aircraft pilot i'm you know i play banjo all right play banjo you're good at banjo you know that's the thing that's interesting who gives a monkeys about their sexuality that's where we need to get to and we're getting there we're getting into a better place um even though politics has gone very weird recently we're still in a better place than we were but I think that's such a, a wise point because we talk a lot about sort of privilege in the contemporary conversation. And I, I always think that one of the, the true kinds of privilege that, that people have and they don't notice is to not be defined by one thing they are. To have – I mean whiteness, for instance, is something that often sort of fades into is – is allowed to fade into the background. Like it almost doesn't exist. Yes. That it – 
it is such a privilege to be seen as a multifaceted person as opposed to reduced down to one characteristic of you. And I think, as you say, that, that that's the sort of purpose of a lot of tolerance to see people as human beings with a lot of parts, not just as, you know, one, one thing. Yes. Well, it's definitely, you know, I had to really push. I mean, coming out in, in 1985, it's so many years ago now when I gave out, it was so hard to do. And I couldn't, you know, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have a this, didn't have a that. I just had to sit with myself again, borrowed confidence for my future self. And I said, I'm going to go do this because I'm designed for this. This is my selection for the SAS. This is instead I'm doing selection for transgender guy of the week or whatever it is. And I said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to deal with that. And that just got me that, that that got me to a, a better place so i was yeah i i found that so tough to do but but in uh, by doing that i had to ex express myself in that way for some time but then i had to reclaim so i had to express the, the girl side of myself as i say then i had to go and reclaim the boy side and then when i could put the marathons back in which i thought i'm going to start doing marathons because that's good for health that's good for raising money that's a, a thing it can reach across in different countries it can link people together you know that's a thing that's not normally seen oh yes transgender and the, the marathon i see that going together um but it's it's a nice high heels and marathon running it's a nice mixture to go together which stops people from going ah you're this oh no you're you're that oh actually you're this it, they're almost you know 180 degrees in the other direction they're not really but uh, people might see them in that way so i do think yeah if you're not seen as in one box if you can do multiple boxes then people could just relax about the boxes and say, well, let's forget about the boxes. Given what things were, were like when you came out in 1985, how do you assess the conversation over transgender rights, representation of transgender people and culture now? Uh, from there to now? Yeah. Uh, hugely different. Um, we were always the poor cousins, really. I mean, you, you get, as I said, lesbian and gay community people, uh, they went out there, they did the hard work, they did the heavy lifting, they they broke down the walls. The pink pound was a very important thing. Yes, we have disposable income. Uh, so business people are going, well, okay, you know, I, I'm wanting to make money. And so, you know, okay, so it whatever it was that pushed things forward was great. And that was coming mainly from uh, lesbian and gay people, uh, and, and I suppose bisexual people as well. And then if you're, if you look kind of blokey and you're wearing makeup, you're so visible in the street that you have to learn a whole load of coping mechanisms. And that's really quite tricky. It's even, you know, still tricky today. Um, I, uh, you know, yeah, 30 years of practice on it, but it's still not a perfect science. But yeah, I've, it is, it just feels better today. And then, you know, different people coming out, different people saying, you know, it's tr transparent that the, the series, Caitlyn Jenner, you know, I'm less uh, enamored by her politics, but, you know, it's, it's very visible still, you know, front page of Vanity Fair, uh, Laverne Cox, black activist and transgender in Orange is the New Black. It's great. All those kind of different people. Uh, Georgina Byer, who you may not know of in New Zealand, New, New Zealand MP, fantastic story. If you Google her, was a, a, a man and then had a terrible uh, an attack situation when she was in Australia, went to, back to uh, New Zealand, um, went up into rural area of New Zealand uh, to, to sort of recoup, decided to change sex so she'd become a woman. And then she decides to stand as a local councillor. They have a proportional representation system. She looks like she's going to come in as a councillor in this rural village. The mayor says, I don't like the idea of that. Transgender woman, well, that's not going to happen here. So he sort of manipulates the figures or whatever he does and uh, that she doesn't become a, a councillor. So then she stands against the mayor and wins against the mayor. And it becomes a cause celeb in New Zealand. And I think it's Helen Smith who's prime minister, head hunts her, brings her in and she becomes an MP. So she was fantastic what she did there. Um, there's other people, you know, transgender people around the world who've done amazing things, not necessarily known completely in, all around the world. So um, I just, there's other people who've, who've, done a lot of fighting up to this point. I just picked up the baton in 85. And, and I didn't do it in a very activist way. I must say, I'm not a, I, I just said, I'm going to do my, the career that I want to do. And I'll just say, and I happen to be transgender, but it's not important. I'm doing this. So that was my key thing. Just doing comedy and then doing drama and then doing running and political activism. I was campaigning in, in the election back in Britain just now. And uh, no one asked me any questions about being trans. Not one for the last three elections that I've been in the last three, two elections in a referendum. It just doesn't come up. It's amazing.
As you've done this work, I mean, all over the world, but what is the difference between doing comedy, doing entertainment in the U.S. and the U.K.? Uh, zero. Zero difference. Is that a quick answer? Too quick? That is too quick. I was waiting for you to expand on it. It's funny because I think that we in America have a – I think we believe the U.K. comedy audience is more sophisticated than we are. Uh, it's more that we allowed niches maybe <sighs> – quicker than you did because Saturday Night Live and from Ernie Kovacs forward, you proved that you could do weird off the wall stuff, but it wouldn't. I mean, the Saturday Night Live guys were not ready for primetime, but they were really primetime, but primetime alternative, you know, and we we had our Monty Python that was coming in. We'd already had the Goon show, which was Peter Sellers, what people know in America, and uh, Spike Milligan, above all, who was the great writer there, and that very much influenced Python. But they, we put out Late Night on BBC One in regional areas. Python came out. It was in the alternative slot. So that was the, the idea, because we know we know was, we have fringe theatre as well as mainstream theatre or off-Broadway theatre. We have uh, independent cinema as well as mainstream cinema. We have alternative music as well as mainstream music. So the idea that there should be an alternative alternative there, which is designed for people who've seen enough of the standard stuff, but they want to take it to the next level. Where can we go? Where can we really go and sort of move things about? And that's what um, that's what we were doing in comedy, maybe before you, but you guys were already doing it, but, the, but in, into the TV system of your three main channels, they weren't allowing a window for that to happen. And that's broken up now with, uh, with more cable system. And so when I came into America, I thought that it would work in America. I was told by a number of American sort of agent type people, your stuff will not work in America. And then it immediately sort of grabbed hold and took off and then dressed to kill became a big thing. And, uh, and you know, now it's, Hollywood Bowl and Madison Square Garden. So, but it's not for everyone's cup of tea. But in fact, it's quite, my stuff is really probably quite mainstream. Just people think I'm very alternative and I'm actually a hybrid between mainstream and alternative. I started off, you know, I love mainstream stuff when I was a kid. And then I thought, actually, these are the same jokes going over and over again. We need to go a bit more off kilter. And Python is, oh my God, they are my comedy gods. And you were, you were called the, uh, the lost member of Python, right? Yeah, by, by John. Yeah, John Cleese. That had to be a quite amazing moment. It was. And then I, I thought, I don't know what you mean, John. So I, so I went to John, I went and saw his show and I said, John, did you, did you actually say that? Cause this was, there were two things. I was worried that, did he really say that or was that just an apocryphal thing? I said, John, did you actually say that? He said, yes, I did say that. Said, Thank you, John. And then I forgot to say, what did you mean, John? I still haven't asked him that question. And I think he probably means lost in time that I'm almost exactly 20 years, 20 years younger than that. I was born in 62, but yeah, I would have loved to have been in, I would have fought to have been in what, Python. What in comedy do you see now that excites you? Well, there's, there's a, a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff out there. I don't, to be honest, I don't trawl through it because I was doing it initially to, to get my influences. And then I go off and do my stuff and I'm trying to get my stuff interesting. I mean, I love Pat Oswald. He does beautiful stuff, off the wall stuff. Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld as a, um, I loved, I started watching it. I'm trying to watch that all the way through just because it's beautiful and off the wall. Um, there's probably loads of stand-ups. I mean, in Britain, there's um, Harry Enfield does wonderful stuff. Steve Coogan does wonderful stuff. It's 